Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Padraig Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast and we love it. 10 by 9 was back on the road this week to the border city of Newry and what a brilliant event it was. The theme was woman and we had amazing stories. The two of us were really struggling with our mental health so we sort of latched onto it. It was like, there's, there's a bit of air, let's grab it, let's grab it. He starts to shout at me how awful I am, how dreadful I am, how you embarrass me so. Whenever you're on the stage, you really would feel and want that those flames of hell not only licked your ankles, but actually consumed you and (laughs) took you away, do you know? And as you'll hear, we also had a warm and boisterous audience. So to get us started, here's an amazing story told by first-timer Gary Havern. So February two years ago, there was a tragic accident up at the Carrickdale where a mother and a son were killed in a car crash. Uh, This happened in February. And then in March, as you all know, we went into lockdown. The person that happened to was my best friend's mum and her brother. At the time, um, I was going through some pretty traumatic bullshit, getting rid of a fat out of my life, which was the sort of traumatic that you sort of wish you had had the bruise, you know? Mm-hmm. You wish you had had the slap in the face to go, right, I ain't going to bother you. <laughs> you know, but they went different ways and I ended up, I, I needed help from the police and with my shit show and her tragedy, we were then put into lockdown. The two of us locked each other and we shit ourselves. We're like, what are we going to do? Like, you know, we, we I, it was only me and my bubble with my son and her and her husband and her father wasn't well and he needed round clock cure and she had to isolate with him and so with that and looking at each other, we were sort of thinking, right, what the hell? And then the next minute, everybody's looking, £20 for PPE, £20 for PPE. Can you spare £20? No, I can't. <laughs> I couldn't. And I was sitting there and I was feeling shit about myself because, like, I should be helping. My mum's a nurse, you know. I was like, right. So I went round the house and I gathered up the shrapnel the change that sits there, that when you have no money, you don't count it as money. Um, there was £33.70p. I was loaded. I was like, 20 quid, here you go. And I thought about it, and I was like, how many other people are out there like me, a single mum, anyway, under the table, jobs are gone with being locked down. You know, you were literally just depending on what you had. And then Avon, she was like, oh God, I have a load of change in the house too. And as I said, the two of us were really struggling with our mental health, so we sort of latched onto it. It was like, there's, there's a bit of air, let's grab it, let's grab it. So we went round and now we brainwave. It's like, we'll make a Facebook page. We'll call it Curing Coins, because all the coins we get we'll use to cure, which has been a bit of a problem because my name's Kerry, so it's Kerry Coins or Curing Coins, <laughs> Curing Queens or the Pound Girl, you know, <laughs> stuff like this. <laughs> we saw it right we'll stick it up there so we stuck it up and what we did was we had a feed bucket 
and we had it on the inside of my door. And we said, look, folks, if you're out in your two-mile drive and you want to pop past for your change, we, we've made this safe that you can do it. So people would come and knock the door, and I'd be like, stand back two metres. <laughs> and then I'd go out and I'd put the bucket at the front door and be like, now just wait a second, then I'd go back two metres and they'd put the money and I'd take a photo. Oh. And it was brilliant. We got to, I got, we got to communicate with people. We got, there's a lady and she had been in isolation for six weeks alone with her son with severe health issues and Down syndrome. And she came and she was at the door for 45 minutes. So we realised, how long? She's feeling good about doing this. We're having a chat. You're good. I'm good. Everybody's good. So we thought, we'll take this on the road. <laughs> so we said, look, if you want to ring us, we'll come. We'll open the boot. You can come out. We'll take the photo. And Caring Coins was born. When it came to what we were going to do with the money, uh, again, I got advice from my mummy. Uh, who's a nurse, and I asked mum, what do they need? Do they need more bottles of water? Do they need more PPE? And she put me in touch with Josephine Poland. Josephine told me, Kerry, our mental health is a shambles. If a girl, if, sorry lads, if she took her period, she was getting caught short because you're not allowed your handbag in. You walked in, they closed you, and you went to work. So if something like this happened and you had to go to the car, it was out of this and into this and out and in and out and in. And it just wasn't fair. And it was just simple. The doctors, if they were being thrown up or in blood, they had no access to pop home for a shower. So what we did with our money was we, uh, we bought them an Alexa and an Alexa dot. We bought them trays of uh, 10 ounce bottles of water because everybody was sitting in the big bottles of water, but they were saying, me, you, and you walk into a room, we all have a bottle of water. Turn around, who owns the water? It was getting dumped. So we were getting them, we 10 ounce bottles of water. Uh, we bought them Nutri-Grain bars. We had a company over in England make us blue and white bath bombs. And every single person in the ED department, from the porter to the doctor to the surgeon, got a wee box of Heroes and a wee blue and white bath bomb to help their mental health. We had shampoos, deodorants, anything that a man or a woman, the deodorants were mutual, you know, they were gender neutral. You know, we, had, we, we even got wee packs of bisques for the patients. But when we went down, we weren't expecting it. We were just like, I'm one of these people, in case you didn't notice, it's like, go, 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 go. And we went down and walked over and the lady came out and she goes, here with a trolley and I was looking they had three three vans behind me I goes oh here I don't know wait a minute you're going to need more than that so they end up they came out and they had about six of the steel cages and we filled them up with everything and the staff all came out and they all came out and started crying and then we started crying mm. and they it was because they needed this stuff this was basic stuff and they hadn't got bloody access to it. They weren't allowed to hug their families and they couldn't even take a shower. So it became very passionate for us that whatever Karen Coyne's money did, did more than just provide an item. Then we went out of lockdown and me and Yvonne were like, oh, right, what are we going to do now? And she was like, I don't know, we'll take the page down. He goes, I don't know, sure. Something will happen, leave it up there. You know, it was very, it was sort of, will we, will we not sort of keep this going? Like, And I was like, right, we'll leave it up. 
Next minute, hey, we're going back into lockdown, folks. And this time I'm watching this man called Jared McGee on his Facebook page. And he's looking money for the help families in our local area who are struggling to have Christmas dinner. And I'm like, oh, God, we'll have to do something about that. Now, that again came from when I had just moved home here. My wee boy had autism. I moved from Mayo to Newry because of his autism and there was no services. There's one speech service in Mayo and it wasn't working. So I moved him home. And when I got home to Newry, I was told I had lived in a different country and that my son's <gasps> autism didn't count up here. His statement didn't count and we had to go on to job seekers at £67 a week and completely go straight through everything and get him completely re-diagnosed. That really was tough. I had no one to help me financially and I turned to St Vincent de Paul simply because I didn't want the shame of asking my family. So I bit the bullet, I decided my son needed something more than I needed pride and I asked for help and I was given help and I'm glad I asked. So this made me very, very empathetic to this 50 families that needed help in Newry. So we took to the streets and we went to B&Q and we got our orange builder buckets and our high vises and we went door to door and we raised £33,000. That was at a as a group of parents and we helped over 350 families two years ago in the first lockdown for Christmas. April last year, we were constituted as a group and all of this kept our heads out of the dark. Now, don't get me wrong, there's tough days and if anybody does follow Karen Coins, you'll see that I'm supposed to do a live and I'll disappear for a couple of days. Chances are I've disappeared into bed because I suffer from anxiety and depression and this is really good for it all <laughs> up here. <laughs> so, you know, it, it does keep us right. That's the whole reason that we started it. We, we partnered with Sure Start, with Home Start, Women's Aid, the Kilkeel Development Association. We went, look, if we raise a few quid and we can help you out, can you give us a family? So it meant that we weren't just buying toys for a girl of a certain age or boy of a certain age. These girls were working in the homes with the families who were in absolute poverty. We didn't top up people's Christmases that some people tried to do. You know, these were the people who had nothing. And we were able to make sure that their children's Santa's list was brought to us. And we fulfilled that. And we also got mum or dad, because there's a lot of dads out there on their own looking after the kids. A wee present to say, keep her lit, you're doing a good job. And we turkey and ham. We were able to tell them that in September, which is again, girls, everybody, anybody in the room who has a child, it's August, September, you're like, oh, I need to put that away for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that option of putting a wee bit away, you're getting closer and closer and you're going to end up maybe not paying your electric or your credit bill or one of these power groups comes in and goes, here, love, I'll give you a land of a few quid. Mm -hmm. So we were able to get in before they get in and go, look, we have you covered. Just keep your head above water. And that's exactly what we do. We keep our heads.
Carrie, what exactly were you nervous about? <laughs> you are the most natural, natural storyteller. <laughs> Nothing to be nervous about, Carrie. You were brilliant. Well done. And if you want to check out her Facebook page, just look up Caring Coins. Remember, if you have a story for 10 by 9 or you want to know more about what we do, check out our website, 10 by 9com There's plenty of info there, including all our dates for 2022 and a few other bits and pieces. Next up is Mary McGrath. Just be warned, the story deals with the issue of domestic abuse. This may look like a very nondescript, ordinary Green Park bench to all of you, but this is my favourite Green Park bench in the whole wide world. And this bench is situated in Ormo Park in Belfast. And I can tell you, because it's such my such is it my favorite bench, I can tell you exactly how many steps it takes to get to that bench from the park entrance. I can tell you the tree it's under. Because it was in that green park bench that I sat many years ago and I made a decision that would change my life forever. So to set the scene, this was nine years ago. My 10-year-old daughter and I were living with my partner. We've been all living together for three years. I'd been with my partner for several years. And it is summer. And my daughter is away for the weekend. So you know that way you have that child-free feeling of freedom? You go, yeah, it's great. So this, however, is a story of the 24 hours before I sat on this green park bench on Ormo Park on a Saturday morning. So I'm going to take you now to Friday night. Uh, this is my partner's favourite pub evening. Now, he's been out the whole afternoon. He hasn't come home in the evening, but I know exactly where he is, which stool he's sitting on in which pub. And I actually really relished, you know, going back to that freedom, time alone. So I put my feet up, I've got the movie on, I've spent hours reading, and it is blissful. So as the hours pass, I begin to think, okay, he's going to be home soon. So, and of course, then I hear him write almost as if he could read my thoughts. And I heard him crashing through the door downstairs. And I can tell he is in a rage even before he puts one foot onto the staircase. And of course he does. He storms into the living room, glares at me. And then it begins. He starts to shout at me how awful I am, how dreadful I am, how you embarrass me so, how messed up I am and how I am to blame for X and Y and Z and A and B and C and D and E and for everything there is. And it gains momentum. As it gains momentum, he gains fury. He is now in full flight and screams at me. And this is one thing I always remember from that evening. You know, Mary, I hope you realize that, you know, I can throw you and your daughter out on the street, just like that, any moment I so choose. Because you know Mary, don't you? <laughs> what are you going to say about that, huh? What are you going to say about that, Mary? Not much, I bet. Because you know, and I know, who is really in control here, don't you? 
And as he was so smashed, he then stumbles off in, out of the living room into the bedroom and I wait to hear him land in the bed with dull, heavy thud. Even though he was screaming in my face the whole time, I don't know whether I was trained at this point to deal with it, but I remained remarkably and bizarrely calm. I just sat there. And I wait till he'd stumbled to bed and then I decide to go downstairs to the study and grab a bottle of wine on my way. Saturday, early Saturday morning. I wake up with the sun streaming through the window, but my head is pounding, and I mean pounding. You see, what had happened was I had passed out, face down, on the keyboard, on the table in the study. But what I do notice beside me is a crumpled piece of paper, has some writing on it, has some typing on it, and some scrolls. And I don't remember printing anything out. I didn't remember writing anything on a page, but there it is. So I just grab the page, shove it in my pocket, because at that point, you know when you have that cloying, asphyxiating feeling that you need to get out of somewhere? And I just needed to get out. I didn't care where. I just grabbed my coat, grabbed the paper, shot out the front door. And this is where I landed. I stumbled up the street to Ormo Park and grabbed, sat, slumped on the first bench I saw. And then I reached into my pocket and I pulled out the paper, which I'd printed off and written on, smoothed it out on the bench to jog my memory as to what I'd put there. And then I discovered it was a questionnaire that I had completed, that I printed out and completed after going online. And I'll give you a flavor. So this is the questionnaire. One, does your partner issue intimidation and threats? This could be things like shouting, acting aggressively, or just generally making you feel scared. This is done in such a way of making a person feel small and stopping them from standing up for themselves. Criticism. This could be things like name calling, making lots of unpleasant or sarcastic comments, or this could look, or making comments on a regular basis designed to lower a person's self-esteem. Tick. Undermining. Question three. This might include things like dismissing your opinion. It could also involve making you doubt your own opinion. And it can also make you feel as if when you complain that you are being oversensitive, disputing your version of events. And then it can also result in suddenly being very nice to you after being very cruel. Double tick. Question four, being made to feel guilty. This can range from outright emotional blackmail, emotional threats, to sulking all the time or giving you the silent treatment as a way of manipulating you. Tick, tick, tick. There are many more questions I could go through and there were many more ticks on that little crumpled up piece of paper. And if you had asked me a few years before that, at any point did I ever imagine that I would be drunk, filling out a questionnaire about emotional, psychological, domestic abuse and women's aid, I would have said, no, never. But you don't know, do you? What can happen to you in life? Because you know, I didn't, genuinely didn't realize at the time, but what I was experiencing 
was domestic abuse. And it is there as I sat on that Green Park bench. I sat and I looked at my life and I looked at that questionnaire and I sat for two whole hours and I finally faced up to what was happening to me in my life as a woman at that moment. You see, it's hard to describe. Emotional abuse had crept into my life and it's insidious. It's like little by little, it's piece by piece and it creeps in oh so slowly that when you take each little incident apart, it doesn't look like anything big, but when you put them together over years and years and years, suddenly you have this mosaic which you feel trapped in, you are cemented in, and you don't know how to put the pieces of yourself back together again. So, I mean, I had got to the stage which I never thought I'd do in life. You know, I always remember getting to that stage um, regularly where I would arrive up at the front door and I'd actually be feeling physically sick and I would be shaken because I didn't know what was going to be on the other side of that door. And I mean, I realised, I realised it in that park bench, we're talking of keys. I mean, I had handed over the car keys and my self-esteem to somebody else, my partner, and I had to regularly watch him crash and smash it every single day. And I was just looking at myself, you know, it was almost like an out-of-body experience on that green park bench, trapped in this wreckage. And I just felt stuck at that up until that point and I couldn't move. So, but I know what I experienced. And I know from speaking to other women that even though the 24 hours I've described to you, that's just a snippet of a longer period of time. And that is nothing compared to what I know other women have gone through and friends of mine. So as I shared with you at the start of the story, you know, some of the worst moments in your life can give you the most valuable moments of clarity. And as I reflected on those last two years, I realized that I had been like a frog in boiling water. And it was that Green Park bench was my wake up moment and my time to leap out of the pan. So the, what I thought was like, this is not the life I want for myself. This is not the life I want for my daughter. And this is not a life anyone should want for anybody else. And I, it's hard to describe, but see sitting on the bench, I go and sit on that bench, you know, now, even if I want to feel better. But I then have this realization. And with this realization, I can only describe that I was flooded I was flooded with light, you know, the light of clarity. I was flooded with the lightness of being. And for the first time in ages, I felt a little sliver of myself waking up, the Mary I used to be. And as I got off that Green Park bench, I knew exactly what I had to do. And I had to leave. And you know what? As a woman, I have never looked back since. Mari, thank you so much and thanks for sharing that experience. You did it brilliantly. Now, Ten by Nine is always free and always will be, but we'd be really grateful if you could help us keep it going, the events and this podcast, with a donation via Patreon or PayPal. There are links at the website, 10 by 9com but we also know that we're all being squeezed right now, and so if it's not possible, relax. The best way to support us is to sit back and keep listening. Now on to our third story, and it comes from Mary McAnulty, 
another first-timer at the 10 by 9 mic. This story takes us back to about 1970 or 1971. It's class 4A in a certain convent boarding school that's not too far from here. So some of these names may have to be changed. <laughs> uh, so some of you, perhaps, or some of your children have been to the same school. Uh, it's a different place now, but in 1971, it was fairly grim. It was so grim that many years later, when my daughters were young and, you know, they loved getting stories, stories straight from your mouth, you know, they beat the library stories. But they loved the horror stories from my school days. <laughs> it, it beat the library books. So anyway, it's 1971, and here we are uh, the girls' convent boarding school, class 4A. 24 girls sitting in four neat rows, six desks. For the most part, it was a very silent education. Uh, we were all girls doing our best to be good, but mind you, it was very difficult in the eyes of the nuns that ran the regime. Some were better at being good than others. Now, I did try, but I just wasn't very good at it. <laughs> I really tried because, you know, the hells of fire were never too far away. And they were always licking around my ankles, ready to consume me. <laughs> the system really made sure that we were very controlled, very silenced and fairly obedient. I mean, the odd night, you know, we did, you know, even in those young days, you know, th this, this story kind of changed everything for me. You know, one of those stories maybe that just changes everything. So this, the odd night, we take a risk and, you know, visit each other in our alcoves after lights out and, you know, share stories and things. And <sighs> Anyway, discipline was held by the Mark Board don't know if anybody here ever remembers anything like that. Sat in the classroom and you've got good and bad marks. Now, I do not know what rewards the good marks ever got you. But I do remember, I do remember that to get five bad marks was absolute hell. Because that meant that at the end of the month that your name would be called out in the assembly hall one by one, and there weren't too many of us, and you'd have to march up, you know, the hall of shame, right up onto the stage. And what happened then was the headmistress, who was particularly good at this, dishing out personalised humiliation after humiliation after humiliation. <laughs> I was saying no names at this point in time. And she, she did it in such a way, you know, that she'd dive in, and then to get you to tears, you know, and you'd be fighting back the tears and fighting back the tears. So you weren't going to get off that stage until the tears finally did come. And then what happened afterwards uh, was you had to spend the next, oh, I don't know, it could be two days, it could be three days, it could be five days, in another line, lining up in the morning after breakfast, saying you were sorry. And you had no idea what you were saying you were sorry for. And, you know, the, the, this nun would kind of look away if she, you weren't forgiven, you know what I mean? And then you had to come back the next day and the next day. So anyway, there, I was on the stage a few times, you know, and, I, you know, it was so bad that whenever you're on the stage, you really would feel and want that those flames of hell not only licked your ankles, but actually consumed you and <laughs> took you away, you know? So anyway, this was the silent education. 
what would happen, and there was a, a kind of routine that the prefect was there and she made sure the system was kept going, you know, in the class. So every day, you know, uh, teachers would come to us and um, you'd stand up, sit down, say the prayer and take out your books. Now, history, history is one of the most fascinating subjects in the world, isn't it? But I do not know how this history teacher, I mean, he was a lovely man, I mean, I say I did like him. He used to come in with his books and they had them from training college. He'd open up the book and he'd read. And then after a while, he'd get up and he'd go to the board and he'd start writing. Owner O'Neill was born in blah, blah, blah. He went to blah, blah, blah. He met so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And he had to write it down and fill in the blank. So I know, don't know very much about Owner O'Neill, but I remember that little bit. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> He went somewhere, in somewhere, and he did something, you know. <laughs> anyway, around this time, some visitors came to this school in the Lower Morns. There were inspectors from the ministry. They were there for two weeks, right? So, we were reminded assembly to behave and give a good impression. Good impressions were always very important. It didn't matter what happened underneath it, as long as you gave a good impression. Very important for, I was going to, for a Louis girl, I may as well say it now. <laughs> anyway, the inspectors came to the history class and they sat at the back. The next day, the history teacher came in and he goes, the usual routine, he had a habit, you know, of jumping up, they had a rostrum and all, and he goes, <coughs> right, there's going to be an announcement, right? <coughs> on Friday girls we will have a discussion everything dropped what? inaudible ripple of surprise right through the class <laughs> expressions we looked at each other bewilderment what? a discussion the word the concept didn't enter our thinking you know <laughs> yes so the teacher goes yes one of you is going to give a talk. And the rest of you will ask questions. <laughs> talk, questions. And then he goes, right, yes, Bridget, stand up. Bridget was really bitty, but you know, they, they didn't yeah. like using this. They thought this would draw the... Bridget, stand up. Bridget, you will give a talk on the Dreyfus Affair. Oh Friday. Okay. Yes, sir. Betty sits down, sits down. We all looked at poor Betty. You know, this is desperate. What are we going to do? The class ends. The class ends and, you know, we go that afternoon, we go to the library and we all help Betty. There were six of us that were always in trouble, right? You know, so here's this, here's this. Look at this. I don't even think we didn't even know who he was or what. You know, just find things out about him and what was going on. Um, so anyway, the week progressed. Friday came. In come the inspectors into the back of the classroom. Oh, God, you could feel the tension. <laughs> Worse than this. You're talking here now. Like <laughs> and uh, in comes the teacher, blah, blah, the usual up. Right. <clears throat> right. Bridget, your talk. Bridget stands up. Biddy stands up. Blah, 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 <coughs> we were relieved at that point great that's the talk over we hadn't thought about the second part <laughs> we hadn't thought about the second part 
You know, what do you do when, when Anna Marie says, yes, right, now it's time for the rest of you mm-hmm. to ask questions. <laughs> do you have any idea how difficult it is to ask a question in, whenever you've never asked one before? Mm-hmm. You've always been the one that's answered questions or whatever. We all looked at each other, what? Ask questions. We did try, you know, because we were still young and good, you know, trying to be good and trying to please, make a good impression. Oh, my God, oh, my God. Uh, a question. And uh, couldn't, couldn't come, couldn't come. We just wanted to, you know, we could, we'd just get silence. And then, you know, one of my other friends, uh, amazing woman, uh, Helena, her hand begins to rise up. Oh. Oh. And then we all thought, oh, what the hell <laughs> is she going to say? Because you have to know what she was like. She was so, so... Um, what can I say? Just looked at the world a different way and it was so, so funny. You know, like we had one other male teacher and he, uh, he'd come back from Africa and he was lovely, you know. And he was kind of, you know, nervous around girls. You know that kind of way? I suppose girls can be awful. So anyway, he had this, he had this, he, he had this habit like this, you know. And he was very nervous, you know. Cicero went over. And Helena's uh, hand went up, you know, a few days previously in the classroom. Uh, yes, Helena. Uh, is there something wrong with your bra strap? <laughs> so this is the kind, this is like Helena, this strange sense of humour. So anyway, anyway, you know, and the course, you know, she did it on purpose because she knew, like, you know, the red would rise from here, you know, and go right up to his face. And then, okay, so what is Helena going to say? So anyway, Helena's hand went up. Yes, Helena. Oh my God. Well, what the next thing was, Helena says, Bridget. And of course she's Bridget. <laughs> she goes, Bridget, what did Madame Dreyfus think of all of this? <laughs> so anyway, I could you, you, what happened next actually is not that important. You know what I mean? What happened next was actually that was the end of the discussion. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, nobody could cope with this question. Nobody could cope with this question. And I mean, that question has stayed with me for the rest of my life. <laughs> that's all I want to say. So that's it. Thanks, Mary. That is such a great question. And what wonderful memories of the joy of an Irish Catholic education in the 1970s. And that is it for this podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so keep in touch with us on social media, the usual places. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com or via the website, which is 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It's the best way to get us noticed. Thanks to our wonderful audience in Newry and to Martina and Andrea who invited us along. But the biggest thanks go to Carrie, Marie and Mary. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now though, bye bye.